This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. So often in the U.S., we define foreign policy as war and peace. Basically, we only think about the military-industrial complex, and we think about foreign policy as the decision to bomb or not to bomb, division to invade or not to invade. You know, but when, you know, when Jorge and I think about foreign policy, we think about questions of financial infrastructure, you know, the dollar system, sanctions, economic embargoes. We think about trade policy. And, and you know, as Jorge, as you both noted, right, these were things that the U.S. left was thinking about in the 90s around the battle for Seattle and, and of course, the emergence of the World Social Forum. But they've kind of fallen off the table. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. This episode is about internationalism on the U.S. left, and it's uh, one of a loose ongoing series on what we're building, which is just what it sounds like, what we're building on the U.S. left today. And one of the things that we're building, I think, is a, a lot more consciousness around um, the rest of the world, uh, beyond the United States borders, and institutions and organizations that can be building relationships across those borders in solidarity and collaboration with other people's movements around the globe. So I'm thrilled to be joined by two esteemed guests, David Adler, who is the General Coordinator of the Progressive International, and Jorge Rocha, Co-Chair of the Democratic Socialists of America International Committee. Um, David and Jorge, thank you so much for, be for being here. Um, why don't you just begin by introducing yourselves for our listeners? Uh, we can start with Jorge. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me, William. Um, my name is Jorge Rocha, as you mentioned. Uh, my pronouns are they, he. I'm a organizer that lives in New York City. And as mentioned, I am the co-chair of the DSA, the International Committee. For those that don't know, the, the International Committee for DSA is essentially the uh, international relations body for the largest social organization in the U.S., DSA, and we act as a kind of diplomatic arm. Some basically the equivalent of what many foreign ministries or, or you know, in the U.S., the State Department for a political party would be, because we interface with uh, leftist and progressive political parties around the world. And internally, because DSA is a big tent, multi-tenancy organization, there are a lot of different perspectives within the International Committee. The, the name International Committee can seem like a misnomer in the sense that oh, there's only like a few people on this committee. There's a steering committee that of 11 people that have um, that are appointed by the National Political Committee, which is the largest, which is the highest leadership body in in DSA. Um, and from there, there's also a bunch of leadership for a variety of different issues, whether it's Americas, Asia, Oceania, so on and so on, that are also appointed by the National Political Committee. But uh, outside of that, there's a rank and file membership of the International Committee, of which there are hundreds of members. I think we're over at least 800 members right now, and. Internally, there's a lot of debate, a lot of uh, disagreement, but the most important aspect that we do is to try to build consensus. So anything that you see the International Committee come out with, for the most part, is 
driven through a consensus process, uh, driving consensus in, inside the international community to be able to reflect all the different perspectives in DSA so that we're unified around difficult questions. Thanks so much for having me as well. Uh, my name is David Adler. I'm the, I'm the co-general coordinator of the Progressive International alongside my newly appointed general coordinator who is on her way to The Hague to work with the South Africa legal team and their genocide case against Israel. I'm sure we'll get into a bit of the politics around Palestine and, and the U.S. left. Uh, I'm calling in now from, from Mexico City, where I call home when I'm not living in my suitcase. And it's great to be with you. I've known Will for a long time, and, and Jorge and I have a chance to work together more recently because uh, we recently welcomed the DSA as, as a member of our Progressive International, which is a global network of trade unions, political parties, and social movements around the world, uh, a kind of self-styled 21st century international that can deliver uh, on the promise of international solidarity, which I think many people who are listening to this program will agree has atrophied as both a conceptual framework, but certainly as a political practice. And we try to revive uh, this rich uh, centuries old tradition of, uh, of worker and peasant and uh, citizen solidarity that I think is to be the, the foundation of, a, of, of an internationalism uh, in a century defined by high degrees of interdependence and integration and existential threats to, to humanity. Thanks to both of you. Maybe I'll just offer a few introductory remarks for kind of what's bringing me to this conversation. Um, I, I feel like this is one of the most important conversations we could be having right now. I think it's safe to say that the U.S. left is having a, an internationalist moment of sorts, uh, especially stemming from horror at the ongoing Israeli bombardment and ethnic cleansing in Gaza. However, you know, while it's encouraging to see U.S. Americans showing solidarity with the people beyond our own borders, because we often haven't seen that, it really doesn't change the fact that bombs continue to fall on Gaza daily, and the Biden administration continues to fund and arm the people doing the killing. And uh, leftists' utter inability to restrain U.S. militarism or its clients around the world has never been more obvious. And you know, I need to have my vulnerability moment here and admit that I think in my political practice, internationalism has not often been at the forefront. I marched against the Iraq war as a young teenager, and I remember in college feeling really sick when I learned about the U.S. history of coups and anti-democratic interventions abroad. And I knew from my research on climate change, you know, that the people of the global south were the least responsible and the most at risk. So intellectually, I was aware to some extent of, of global justice and injustice. But in practice, when I started to really get serious about organizing, and this was around the time of Occupy Wall Street, I found it really difficult just to like find an internationalist basis for organizing and building power. U.S. foreign policy seemed super untouchable. Everything suggested that we had no hope of changing it. And as an organizer, I was taught that you don't organize around an issue where you have no leverage and no chance of winning because nobody's going to get involved. The whole point of organizing, as I learned it, is to learn how to win because people want and they need material change. Working class people in the U.S. need something to believe in and fight for now. And how are you going to materially change the U.S. military industrial complex? You know, good luck. So just perfectly candidly, I think me and my comrades found it easier a lot of the time to ignore foreign policy. And we told ourselves that this was also the principled and strategic thing to do. You know, maybe at some point in the future, we could take over the U.S. government and implement a more humane foreign policy. 
But the way to take over the U.S. government would be by focusing perhaps exclusively on domestic issues. And, you know, I think this was really the mainstream left progressive orientation um, in the 2010s. You know, Bernie Sanders, to his credit, um, spoke out against U.S. interventionism during his campaigns. And his line on Henry Kissinger in the 2016 primary debate was like, I think, a legendary moment. (laughs) But I don't think anybody really was confused and thought that anti-imperialism was the main thrust of the Bernie movement. The Bernie movement really stood for New Deal-style social democracy. And most of us didn't want to face the ways that this could continue to be entirely compatible with U.S. American economic and military violence abroad. And I think one could even argue that, um, as I think you suggested, that the U.S. left went backwards on internationalism in the 2010s. You know, the left of the 90s was really oriented around trade and global justice. 9-11 was a challenging moment, but even so, the uh, the anti-war movement regrouped and became one of the largest U.S. left movements of the 2000s, especially against the Iraq war. And it, it seems in hindsight that the anti-war movement then lost steam after Obama's election. And then following the financial crisis, movement energy, grassroots energy in the country really reconstituted around domestic matters. And, you know, this was good. So I don't, I don't want to say that nothing good was happening here. Of course, this is where I was shaped and came up as an organizer. And we saw new constituencies entering on the left through Occupy, through Black Lives Matter and a revived labor movement. But it seems clear that the internationalist lens really did take a back seat. So in sum, I, I would uh, propose that the, the 2010s social democratic left really had a blind spot around internationalism that we chose not to face. For some, this was out of ignorance, but for some, it was also out of expedience. So let's start here. W- would you agree with this general assessment of uh, internationalism on the U.S. left in the 2010s? And what were you doing at this time? And what was your view maybe at that time um, uh, of some of these questions. We, well, let's begin again with Jorge. Yeah, thank you so much for that uh, introdu- introductory remarks, William. I think I would agree generally with that assessment for myself. <laughs> uh, in the 2010s, I, I, so that's when I was in school. Um, I was both in high school and college. Um, so I think for a lot of people on the left now, particularly if they were part of the general millennial thrust into more progressive politics through the Bernie movement, their um, the president that they kind of grew up under was George W. Bush, and obviously everything with, with Iraq War and 9/11 and and the fallout from Afghanistan really played in the front of people's minds. Um, since I'm slightly younger, on like in that generation, the president that kind of is on the front of my mind was Barack Obama, and uh, you know I, my the entry point for my politics is since my parents were. Mexican immigrants and moved to the U.S. I grew up in Texas. The idea of the U.S. being this internationalist hub has always been part of me growing up. You know, I grew up speaking Spanish. I still speak Spanish exclusively with my parents. So I guess there's a different perspective that I have that maybe a lot of people in the U.S. left, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, whatever you want to say, it's like there is like a uh, overwhelmingly white majority in the U.S. left, which I think there's a lot of reasons historically. But I think for me, that was always an aspect of my politics in terms of interacting with everything. So when Obama became into office, and I think you astutely pointed out that the anti-war movement that occurred post 9-11 and, and had George W. Bush, 
lost momentum after Obama got into office. And I don't think that's an accident because he ran as like, a, oh, I'm, I was against the Iraq war. I was against, uh, I, I'm, I'm against the continual militarism that the U.S. has been doing. And once he was in power, I think it's very clear that this is not <laughs> what he was doing. And he very much persisted that through other means. And particularly with this current moment, what's going on in Gaza, and then also what's happened everywhere else in the world, you know, Ukraine's another example. A lot of what's happened in the past few years in terms of general instability, it's really come, like, I've really came to this understanding revelation for myself that you really Obama set the stage for a lot of the current situation. If you look at, say, what happened to, say, the instability in Africa, you know, Obama was the one that really set up AFRICOM, the the uh, military mm-hmm. command for the U.S. military abroad. You know, if you look at, say, what happened in Ukraine, a lot of what happened in terms of, like, the past few years in terms of NATO expansion, what have you, which, you know, we can get into. But point is, like, that happened under Obama. Same thing with the, quote, pivot to, China, uh, pivot to Asia regarding everything going on in China and the geopolitical tensions with respect to that. You know, everything with respect to what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now. Like Obama really set the tone for that, and especially given like the back and forth with Iran. Like again, I think the Iran deal was good, but nonetheless, it's like it's still we have to we ha- we do have to keep that in mind. And in fact, like most people don't know, for example, say Venezuela, the first sanctions against Venezuela did not happen under Trump, but actually had started under Obama. So I do think it's like important to reckon with that that the background stage of that of what our current moment happened under Obama. So when I you know going back to say what I was doing, like. The reason I really emphasize that is like my first kind of like awareness of like uh, my internationalist and anti-war, anti-imperialist politics really had to do with like the revelations that came about under Obama. So, for instance, there's like the Chelsea Manning revelations with WikiLeaks. There's the Edward Snowden uh, revelations, which I think is was quite profound um, in my thinking, and I know for a lot of people because there is a line of thinking among the U.S. left. Um, that existed for a long time. I think it's less and less so, but the idea that, oh, well, I mean, all governments are bad, so on and so on. And, you know, there's we can all have our critiques of power, and I think that's very reasonable. But nonetheless, the revelation that there's very sophisticated international, global surveillance apparatus that surveils the entire world is a, if you, you know, we will joke about, oh, the FBI agent, it's like, look, reading this message or what have you, but that's actually a very profound shift in people's understanding of the world that there's like a you know it's basically the contours that there is yeah. one empire that's like surveilling everybody and i think it's hard to escape that yeah i think it's important to, to, to start off will by <clears throat> by emphasizing that your your feeling your impulse your perception uh is a well-established academic fact that if you look at the different uh arenas of policymaking in the United States, if you think about domestic issues, education, health, uh, they are much more responsive to, to public opinion than, uh, than foreign policy is. We have this uh, sort of impenetrable fortress uh, that is foreign policy. Um, and I think we'll get into a bit of that why, specifically in the US. And so I, I want to start also by noting that that uh, discrepancy between foreign and domestic uh, response, democratic responsiveness is a global phenomenon. Foreign policy is the last arena around the world to be democratized. Whether we're talking about Brazil or Chile, India, Pakistan, it doesn't matter. Uh, 
This is the last arena of policymaking that's dominated by men in suits where, uh, speaking French in dark corridors that most citizens will never see. Um, if you take the case of Brazil, for example, Brazil still has this deeply intensive, uh, some would say racist class as training to enter into Itamarachi, the foreign ministry, where you have to speak English and French um, to qualify. Wow. So it's always skewed in this direction. And I think uh, it's helpful not to digress into an even longer historical trajectory, but to remember what foreign ministries do, what, do, what the world of diplomacy is. You know, this comes out of a world in which international relations are the relations between empires and therefore are about the circuitry of extraction, uh, imports and exports. And uh, so, you know, when we think about the what, what a foreign ministry does and has done for centuries, the primary goal of foreign ministry is to facilitate commercial relations between countries. It's not to facilitate mutual understanding, cooperation between peoples. Uh, and so it's always a challenge. It's always storming the castle when we talk about foreign ministry. And it's not a coincidence that even when we look at friendly governments with which, you know, Jorge and I work, uh, they're often the first to give away the foreign ministry to the right, to conservative forces, to establishment forces, because they don't want to fight all those fights and because the deeply entrenched, uh, broadly obscured, difficult to access uh, establishment. Uh, and so when we think about the barriers to international in the United States, Certainly one of them is cultural. You know, uh, I have experiences going to Washington and saying, you know, there's a outright fascist who's running for president in Chile. Um, can you tweet something? And them saying, where's, where's Chile again? You know, just like there is a deep educational problem. I don't think we should understate uh, the crisis of ignorance about world affairs, which is written into our textbooks and written into the DNA of our kind of exceptionalist narrative that we don't have to think about the rest of the world, which is a privilege that's highly structured. And we can talk about that a bit later that, you know, Jorge's, Jorge's mentioned. So part of it's cultural, part of it's political. So how many times have I worked with friendly MPs or uh, members of Congress like um, Rashida Tlaib, for example, and her foreign policy person will say, look, we, we, we've used up all of our foreign policy um, political capital this month. If we tweet one more thing about uh, Colombia, we'll get uh, hit with a ratio. Why don't you care about what's happening in your own constituency? So there's a political idea that there's a zero-sum relationship between how much our politics can attend to foreign issues and how much they can attend to domestically, which, of course, strikes at the very concept, the very definition of solidarity, which is not charity. It's not an afterthought. It's the notion that because of the deep interdependent nature of our global economy and politics, um, the things that we do here affect the things that happen there and, and, and vice versa. It's the notion that doing well, you know, this comes out of uh, the old workers idea of international solidarity that, you know, if we can set up an eight hour workday in this country, uh, if they're still working 16 hours a day o over there, that's going to erode our bargaining power in, in our own country because now we're locked in a zero sum battle between more easily exploited workers and less easily exploited workers. And so we have to raise uh, worker protections together. So that's the idea of, of solidarity. It's just not popular uh, in the U.S. And there's a political addiction to uh, the, the, the zero-sum idea of U.S. empire, where we only win by them losing uh, the idea of kind of mutually beneficial uh, growth uh, is, is really tough to uh, resolve or accommodate within a, a certain global economic paradigm in which 
the price of our consumer goods depends on the exploitation of, of those workers. So there's also a political idea that every word I give to my constituency is a word I don't give abroad, and every word abroad I give is a word I don't give at home. But the most challenging one, which now you both have alluded to, is the institutional barriers to internationalism, which is the hypertrophy of our security state. You know, it's a shame that uh, the Trumpists have made the concept of a deep state somewhat partisan in nature, because that is exactly what we have. And as I was saying before, that's something that other countries also have uh, a deep state. But if you look at how our, uh, you know, it's not just from an activist perspective, right? Also from a congressional one, people are shit scared of the security apparatus. They do not want to fight those fights, not because just they can't be won, but because they're deeply, deeply scared. Uh, and because the, the vengeful nature, right, the independent mind, the independent logic of that, uh, it's just not going to respond to domestic priorities. And, and, and then when I talk about the institutional nature, I'm also talking about simple things. You know, this, this summer in August, I organized this delegation for a few members of Congress, um, AOC, Greg Kassar, Nadia Velasquez, among them. And, you know, the amount of ethics paperwork, the amount of confrontation with these institutions that basically serve to constrain and to strike fear into the hearts and minds of our representatives is just huge. You know, I can call a, a congressperson from Spain. I'm doing it now, right? Because we're talking on the precipice or on the eve of uh, this ICJ case. And so I'm trying to bring some people to come support the South African case in The Hague. I can call a member of Congress in Britain, in Belgium, in Colombia, in Spain, and I could say, hey, hop on a plane and go to The Hague and, and stand up for what you believe in, right? And they can just do that. They don't have to you know, work through these institutional processes that have the uh, presentation of due diligence and legitimacy. And in some ways, sure, you can argue that a lot of this legislation, like the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, which is a tremendous unprecedented legislation that basically says, uh, basically criminalizes solidarity work, says if you are working too closely or too deeply with foreign governments, uh, you are, you know, uh, accused of whatever, not just double loyalties, but you're actually breaking the law. You know, we have these institutional barriers, and that's without even going into questions of economic sanctions and embargoes that literally criminalize um, any kind of friendships or solidarity. And so these, the cultural, political, institutional barriers to internationalism in the U.S. are very closely related, right? Why is there an embargo against Cuba? Well, one of my personal opinions is even forgetting the Florida calculation that's, you know, electoral is that people just don't know. They've never been there. They don't know enough Cubans. Um, they don't know what the consequences of U.S. actions are. And that's because we don't let them go there. And that's, again, before we get to like questions of North Korea, right, which is another like, you know, for most people, if you listen to like, you know, the blowback season podcast about what happened in the Korean War, that blows really people's minds blow because not just yeah. we, I thought that the Korean War was one of the good wars, honestly. I don't know where I got that, but that was just the impression I grew up with. Yeah, and so, you know, part of me resolves to this kind of very, you know, psychedelic, freer mind view of 
the U.S. left's relationship to international issues, which is just like, you know, we've got to talk about these things more. They're so scandalous. And I can reach into my bag of, of issues, as can Jorge, um, uh, of the, the most scandalous issues uh, that relate to the U.S. and abroad. It, but my personal education wasn't even in the U.S. I mean, I never wanted to really work in the U.S. I still hate working in the U.S. It's just such a hostile, in, like I said, sort of hypertrophic institution that bears down and prevents any kind of uh, free, freedom of, of, of action and expression uh, around what our own representatives can say. It's such a deeply anti-democratic system when it comes to this arena of policymaking called foreign policy. But mine was mostly in Europe. And Europe has many of its own problems. Deep political pathologies, certainly today, uh, is a very different Europe than the one I was working in, which was uh, Europe at the height of its kind of uh, left populist moment. Things felt very open, but also because the nature of European integration you know, Europe has become a kind of laboratory for thinking about these questions of international integration and cooperation. When do international institutions, uh, you know, because they install a certain market logic, impede the expression of solidarity between peoples? When do they enable it? When does education exchange facilitate uh, the formation of a consolidated transnational bourgeoisie that's just going to basically rule over the continent of Europe? Or when does it facilitate uh, intercultural understanding that can enable people to really think and talk together? You know, that was one, that was a one major arena where I learned a lot. And then of course, coming to Latin America, uh, which for people listening, I think is probably the best entryway to make sense uh, for the US left to grapple both with the legacy of US influence. Uh, I don't even hesitate to call it legacy with the actuality, with the present uh, nature uh, of the US architecture uh, of influence, imperial influence, I won't hesitate to say, um, but also for these questions of international integration. So how does a, a region uh, looking to its northern neighbor, which is temporarily, for the moment at least, indispensable for its economic survival, We'll get into that, whether that's a sure thing in the long term, but grappling with questions of how you build a more resilient and autonomous region, and then how you confront a northern neighbor that's basically determined to divide and conquer, you know, with a with a name that it proudly bestows to that doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine. And that that's also been a very powerful way from here in Mexico, in Central America, which is an even more fraught, even more uh, sort of uh, colonized uh, to this day kind of kind of region where U.S. influence is even more malign, where we literally have, you know, if you go to Honduras, the U.S. Southern Command is just walking around as if they own the place, you know, the U.S. ambassadors giving instructions to these governments as if it's, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's, uh, yeah. you know, uh, rough riders. So let's let's um, stick here with so Latin that, America so, for a second, David. Yeah. Just because I, I agree that if you're on the left and you're looking for a, a, a positive vision from the U.S. of how socialist movements can contend for power and transform society, that is the place to be looking for a positive vision. It's very uneven, very unfinished, very fraught very contingent, it would seem. The, the right wing is very mobilized and powerful uh, all across Latin America, but, but left political parties um, also really are, are, are throwing punches and winning um, with deep roots in labor and indigenous communities in, in many of these countries. They've won victories that, that we in the U.S. Can, can really only dream of. And much of your work is also there, uh, and you live there in Mexico City. So what would you say are like uh, just... The, what should the U.S. left be uh, paying attention to um, when it looks not just at U.S. foreign relations with Latin America, but also the uh, Latin American left itself and, and what it's done um, with its conditions? 
So there's a there's a optimistic and a pessimistic view here, and I think it's critical to toggle between them, uh, or sort of the pessimistic view. The pessimistic view is that if you really take stock of the full architecture of U.S. empire in Latin America, it is it's overwhelming. Um, you know, we have so many three-letter agencies. We have a, a whole military command. We have military bases. We have our, uh, you know, our em- embassies there installed to influence and undermine allies government. It's very difficult to see how to dismantle all that in, in the short term, um, especially when we see how movements that have directly targeted that, targeted those institutions, Take the Bolivarian Revolution, or even Eva Morales, right? We, we, we. You'll, your your listeners will remember um, when the Biden administration hosted the Summit for Democracy, uh, which was our great virtual convening to try to revive democracy from its deathbed right. to a more robust place. And we didn't invite Bolivia, as if as if <laughs> like as if they were a, not a real democracy in some way, even though we were the ones who orchestrated the coup against Eva Morales. So even bracketing that. So the pessimistic way would just say, like, this is so big uh, and so much bigger than people realize because so often in the U.S. we define foreign policy as war and peace. Basically, we only think about the military-industrial complex and we think about foreign policy as the decision to bomb or not to bomb, division to invade or not to invade. You know, but when, you know, when Jorge and I think about foreign policy, we think about questions of financial infrastructure, you know, the dollar system, sanctions, economic embargoes. We think about trade policy. And, and, you know, as Jorge, as you both noted, right, these were things that the U.S. left was thinking about in the 90s around the battle for Seattle and, and of course, the emergence of the World Social Forum. But they've kind of fallen off the table. And I think mostly through the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, this experience of kind of really raw, hot war, uh, we've let these other issues uh, kind of slip away from our understanding of what foreign policy is. Uh, and I, you know, I, this comes also out of my experience working on that Bernie campaign uh, in 2020 on the foreign policy team, where I was saying, you know, guys, foreign policy is what are we doing with the World Bank and the IMF? What are we doing with special drawing rights? What are we doing with these questions that will determine the future and the fate of the lives and livelihoods of billions of people around the world? No, but foreign policy is mostly about what we do in Israel-Palestine. Foreign policy is about whether we withdraw from Afghanistan, but it's a much bigger view. So the pessimistic idea is if you t- really take account of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, it's just so big. The more optimistic view is that the smallest changes can affect the largest outcomes. Um, you know, there's so much there for us to unwind, for us to unpick, for us to reform. Um, even simple stuff, like I remember this summer after our delegation, we succeeded to, to declassify some of the basic uh, really narrow documents, presidential briefings around the U.S. role in the 1973 coup against Salvador Allende in Chile. This was a huge gesture of international friendship, uh, solidarity outreach that meant not just meant a lot sentimentally, but really served to document, um, you know, and, and solidify a historical record that indeed uh, the U.S. administration w- was, you know, was involved in and knew very clearly about the timing of, of this coup. And so there's all these, there's lots of low-hanging fruit uh, that, that comes to the application of certain promises. You know, I'll give another example just for the sake of it. You know, Joe Biden, I mean, on the campaign trail, he promises... Uh, to abolish and to put an end to this system of secretive uh, arbitration courts that allow corporations to take states to 
uh, punitive <laughs> courts that are run by corporate judges and corporate arbitrators uh, to pursue billions of dollars in um, compensation for uh, any legislation that prohibits or impinges on their uh, profit margins. So let's say th through our free trade architecture, I'm Argentina and I want to raise my minimum wage. Well, if I'm a corporation that relies on the exploited labor of Argentine workers, I can then say, you took away my profits, now pay me back X billions of dollars. Now, Joe Biden promised to do away with this system which, you know, whatever you want to say about his record on labor, I guess he has some kind of heart for workers, uh, but just hasn't done it, right? And so there's all this room to basically say, okay, we're going to pick these battles well uh, that are going to make a difference in millions of people's lives and think about how we can win, win, win those battles. I'll turn to Jorge to say a bit about, you know, what he thinks we can also learn from some of the Latin American uh, movements and parties and unions with which the DSA has been involved in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I agree with pretty much everything David said in terms of like a different perspective on how do we approach international relations and foreign policy um, to suggest that we as citizens of the United States are simply working with like, if we just focus on domestic issues and just focus on the militaristic elements of our government is simply short-sighted because of, uh, and people don't know. I mean, like, and I think really the question people should have to ask those who don't know or are, aren't familiar is just ask them, well, why do you think, say, for example, you know, the city I live in, New York City, why do you think that New York City has the most financial power in the world? And I think it's, 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 it's not so much of our education is kind is, is doesn't teach people the historical process of how societies develop. And it's not an accident that there is such a large concentration of financial power in the United States and also other countries like, say, the United Kingdom, France, Germany. And it's intimately tied with the development of those countries and also how they've interacted and, frankly, exploited many other countries and nations around the world. And so when you bring up, say, the World Bank or the IMF, all of that is intimately tied. I mean, Allegedly, the World Bank is a, a, the bank for the whole world and for international development, and you know, various very various organizations and nations board. are a part of it. And yeah, exactly. Who 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 appoints the president every time? So I think that's like a really important understanding people don't have. And so uh, to move on, but you know, to move on to the question with like Latin America, there are so many lessons to to be that need to be learned from different parts in the Americas because. Something I've started to say recently is people in the U.S., you know, there's a lot of reasons for this, like look towards, say, Europe, for example, in terms of progressive changes, but, uh, and because a lot of the population that the U.S. has has their origin in Europe, but the United States of America is in the Americas. So maybe we should learn from the experiments that are happening in the Americas for the American context. Now it's, and I think, there is way much more similarity with the U.S. to other countries like Brazil or Mexico than many people in the U.S. realize because, uh, you know, I know this word has been used a lot recently, but the history of how the uh, colonization of the Americas and the, you know, the discovery, quote unquote, of the new world, how all these nations came about has to do with the process of settler colonialism and all these countries have their roots in that process. And just because, say, countries like Brazil or Mexico tend to be, you know, less white in terms of like the skin color of people, 
their origin, a lot of people, I mean, uh, you know, for example, myself, I'm like mestizo, right? It's like basically means mixed. But the whole point there is that I'm mixed with like the European descendants and indigenous and also African and other things. But if you look at, say, a country like like, like Brazil, it's a really good example of this. And I think a lot of liberals um, in the U.S. kind of fall into this trap that I think is like why I think a lot of the far right points to, not entirely, but I think they do point to, say, this idea, this insane idea of like the great replacement. But I think many liberals, frankly, I think argue a similar theory, but say that's good. That, oh, it's good that, say, brown people are replacing white people because that means they're more progressive, which I think is kind of a little racist, to be frank, because that, that, that you know, people of color are not monolithic like anyone else. And so, but if you look at, say, Brazil, there are all these like really complex like class relationships regarding race because the majority of Brazil are not like what you would consider white. And yet there is racism. And yet there is like these caste systems by, by all this. And it's like, it, you're, it's not going to simply be solved through um, just like the changing demographics. And in fact, like if you look at say people who put Bolsonaro into power, you know, a lot of them are people who are originally European descent, but a lot of it has, has to do with like the economic relationship that they have with respect to what they would gain if, Bolsonaro got into power and also also social issues. So there's like, I think lessons with respect to that, um, but also with respect to how to build power. I mean, we mentioned Bolivia. Uh, the fact that there was a coup in Bolivia is very common in the history of Latin America with respect to U.S. In- involvement and intervention. But what is unusual is the fact that the Bolivian people reversed that. And I think there's actually a quite big lesson there that if there's an organic uh, worker people movement of changing the government through organization and activism and uh, intentional movement building, that's hard to dislodge because when you do that, you can also reverse that if it's sophisticly, sufficiently organized and unified. I think the question that we would need to ask then on another podcast um, is, uh, you, if we were to establish a baseline of greater awareness of some of these Latin American societies, the class relations, the relation, the race relations, how they've been interplaying with um, the sort of U.S. economic and uh, some military domination over the years, and then reckon with the the really high level development of Latin American left and progressive social movements so that they can accomplish something like what was accomplished in Bolivia, or they can, you know, Lula can come back from prison and be able to then uh, uh, defeat Bolsonaro in, in an election, repel the coup, uh, actually uh, the Bolsonaro January 8 coup, uh, and, and then you know actually go on the offensive in the legal terrain, which the Democrats have refused to do here. Having established some greater awareness about these kinds of questions, we would then need to ask like, okay, what is the same and what is different about the class composition, the racial composition, the power blocks in the U.S.? What is different about being in, you know, one might say the core rather than the periphery? And then what does that mean about what kind of movements and uh, social formations are are possible here, uh, are, are less possible here because of different composition? But we could untangle some of that. And maybe we'll get back to some of that a little bit towards the end when we talk about the way forward for the U.S. left. 
Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. I want to do a little tour around some other parts of the globe um, that have been at issue in U.S. politics over the last couple of years. And um, we want to uh, pick up the conversation about uh, U.S. economic policy, which has been a hot topic under the Biden administration, um, and how it relates in particular to China. So, you know, uh, Biden's Build Back Better agenda, <laughs> if we go back to 2021, when uh, lots of people were very excited about this, myself included, uh, really did take up, I think in fairness, a lot of Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's uh, domestic policy and intended to pass it in this sort of revival of U.S. social democracy. And he was mostly thwarted um, by Manchin and Cinema. However, Manchin and Cinema do not bear full responsibility. Manchin really it bears a lot, but but Biden was also a party from the beginning in filtering uh, the Bernie Warren agenda even further through the prism of U.S. American competitiveness and economic patriotism. And what resulted was that uh, of the original Bernie's $17 trillion Green New Deal package, you know, that was filtered down into Biden's uh, $4 trillion Build Back Better. And then we got, you know, $400 billion or what have you with the Inflation Reduction Act. But the provisions that made it through, the Biden filter and then the Manchin filter, were the ones that really uh, intended to benefit U.S. manufacturing especially at the expense of the Chinese. The entire green transition was steered in the direction of great power competition rather than as a mandate for a new global collaboration to decarbonize and halt climate change, which many people were calling for instead. And you know, from the accounts I've read, Biden's advisors and the democratic policy elite uh, really came to see pro-USA, anti-Chinese industrial policy as a necessary step after 2016, which scared the shit out of them, to reverse the U.S. manufacturing downturn caused by globalization, which they believed contributed to the rise of Trump. Uh, now, regardless of whether it did contribute, which we probably did, now is the solution to move into a new stance of geopolitical economic competitiveness, which also, by the way, is military competitiveness. And they say all this stuff in the same sentence. And uh, Biden, what we can say for sure is that Biden and Congress's actions and rhetoric on this front have clearly escalated, contributed to escalating tensions with China and empowered a lot of you know hawkish personalities on the on the Chinese side as well who were uh, in dialogue in a maybe downward spiral with some of our, you know our hawkish elements in the Biden administration and the economic um, competitiveness crowd in Congress. So what's your view of Biden's green industrial policy and its international consequences over these last several years? 
So I think you point to a really important misunderstanding, uh, even naivete, that I think pervaded um, the majority of the U.S. left for, for so many years, which was the idea that uh, post-neoliberalism, the thing that came, the paradigm that came after was going to be green, was going to be equitable, it's going to be democratic, and it was going to be peaceful. Like, these were the main delusions of the post-neoliberal paradigm. And in the past few years, we've seen the big foundations, Hewlett, Soros, invest like tens of millions of dollars into research on this new paradigm. Thinking uh, very quixotically that it was going to be better than the last thing. But as you rightly point out, you know, we're seeing in post-neoliberalism, it's not a coincidence, by the way, that it was Jake Sullivan who delivers the speech about post-neoliberalism, right? It's the national security advisor who's articulating the new paradigm. This is one that's geared towards great power conflict. It's geared towards sustained domination, not just of our hemisphere, uh, but, you know, towards a more global NATO uh, approach. Um, and it's one about, you know, friend shoring, basically uh, driving more, more fragmentation. So obviously those are, those are disappointing. It's disappointing for, to see many of our allies celebrating this green transition because of the longstanding perception that green politics is always watermelon in nature. It's always going to have a red component there. But as we're seeing now with the introduction of, uh, of Bidenomics, this is largely a program of subsidies and giveaways to a, a capitalist class that doesn't care at all about uh, workers' rights. Uh, and of course, we're seeing that work, if I'm not mistaken, well, you know much better than I do, migrating to states that have, you know, right-to-work legislation uh, that's not at all favorable to, to, to unionization. So that's on the domestic side. I think what's most frustrating, uh, and this goes to Jorge's point about the sort of global imperial architecture that we often kind of overlook uh, for convenient reasons, is that this is not a paradigm, paradigm shift that we are happy to see worldwide. So let's just take the energy charter. So recently, the energy charter, which is uh, very constraining in terms of how much the state can intervene to kind of provide subsidies or whatever for the green transition. We've seen European countries leave this wholesale to say, okay, we're not part of this energy charter because it has these ISDS provisions. Remember I was mentioning those private arbitration courts where uh, corporations and capitalists can sue countries. But we're not letting the global south do that. We're not letting uh, the rest of the world, sort of rules for thee and not for me. It's, an, it's one of the highest points of exception uh, that I've seen in my lifetime is the way in which we talk about the green transition we talk about its urgency. We talk about the compatibility of the green transition and middle class prosperity, and we do everything in our power to prevent that from happening. Jennifer Granholm, who so is if you think a about former it, governor here in Michigan, who's the Secretary of Energy, I mean, she goes around the country and she talks about American energy dominance, American energy dominance, and she she didn't come up with that phrase, but this is what they say all the time. And what, how are people supposed to hear that when this is what our top policymakers are saying? What do you think dominance is? Yeah, and I guess look at our closest neighbors, right? So, so Mexico, Honduras, these are two countries that uh, went to great lengths to nationalize the grid, to take back some energy sovereignty, which is a precondition to basically any form of serious dealing with a green transition. Right? You're not going to bargain with uh, Exxon and Chevron about um, how to make sure you have a just and equitable and rapid green transition. And we just went after them like crazy. I mean, we called them petro-populists for wanting to take back control of natural resources, which, by the way, in this country, Mexico is a constitutional provision, longstanding, over a century old. Um, 
But, you know, the second that uh, Honduras, the government of Xiomara Castro, uh, center-left progressive government, has said, you know, we, we want to take back our grid, the U.S. trade rep was like, absolutely not. You don't do that. And that's before we get to questions of, you know, Laura Richardson, uh, chief of the Southern Command, going around Latin America and basically uh, and it's also happening in Congress, you know, threatening countries that dare to do exchanges of uh, critical resources and minerals um, with uh, with China or with with Russia, whom we accuse of malign influence while overlooking our own, uh, or what's happening right now, which is a way too complex issue to get into. But you know, flying or doing military exercises with Guyana, which famously has discovered one of the largest. Uh, reserves of uh, light, sweet crude, as Laura Richardson wants us to know, um, you know, off the off the South American coast. So, uh, what what's frustrating, and what we need to break, I think, from the U.S. left, is to say we can't be celebrating um, the arrival of a new post-liberal, green-friendly paradigm while doing everything in our power to prevent uh, countries uh, in, in the South. Uh, from leveling up in their own way and and you you know inver- investing their own resource threats, trying to for example keep more uh, of the lithium production chain so you know trying to make sure that the resources that are extracted domestically are not exported as raw materials but that are that are upgraded so that there's higher revenues to be reinvested in the green transition these are basic questions of development and dependency that have been around for decades and decades and decades and still are unresolved, even though they're not so fashionable to talk about anymore. I think we're seeing dependency theory reemerge in academic annals, but certainly less politically, we're still sort of convinced like, oh yeah, tough shit. Like, you know, we have the structural power to do what we want with our resources um, and you don't and, and sorry. So I think that's, I think that's the point that we have to grapple with is the, is the, is the, um, is the hypocrisy of it. Jorge, is there anything you'd like to add on that? Yeah, I think a lot of what David said resonates with me, and I definitely agree with it. What I would want to add on to what David just mentioned is um, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And there is a very important component in terms of, and it's going to be, if if your listeners would be fine with going on a little bit of a journey in terms of like the development of kind of how a lot of bills in, in, in like Congress can kind of develop and kind of play in together can actually really explain the context of like the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of say this um, like this as I mentioned before like energy dominance and how it's all intimately connected with like this larger project. I mean, so um, you know people are aware of the Inflation Reduction Act, but I mean if you remember actually within hours of the Inflation Reduction Act being like announced that there was a deal that had kind of come about, that it was like these secret negotiations. I mean, maybe if you remember people who were following along, shortly before that, there was the passing of the Chips and Science Act. And the Chips and Science Act is actually quite important with respect to if you're talking about, say, a green industrial policy, you know, energy sovereignty and things like that, you do need a sophisticated semiconductors industry and uh, the investment and re- research for that because. A lot of like how energy, clean energy works in terms of batteries and things of that nature. Solar panels are require a resilient and sophisticated technology infrastructure. Now, it's important here. It's like the Chips and Science Act is not, you know, seems very nice on its face in terms of like, oh, uh, further development in terms of subsidies for chip manufacturing, you know, investment tax credit for manufacturing equipment, more for semiconductor uh, research and workforce, workforce training, as well as like uh, you know supply chain resilience. But the origin of this act actually has like an interesting history. I mean, like in 2019, you know Chuck Schumer and Todd Young 
introduced an act called, in, like in 2019, right before COVID, an act called, I'm not kidding, the act was called the Endless Frontier Act. Now, if like if you know anything about the history of the mm. U.S. in terms of like red the flag. way the frontiers yeah, played, <laughs> it, it it it's it's little little not not uh it doesn't resonate well and in fact was specifically made for high tech research infrastructure uh, high tech research relevant to U.S. national security and um, at the same time there was another bill that uh, like basically the Endless Frontier Act morphed into what became known as the United States Innovation and Competition Act. And this was in 2021. And actually, the International Committee wrote a statement in 2021 condemning like this legislation because we're explicitly saying that this is fueling a new Cold War against China. You know, explicitly uh, what we said, there was like, for example, is this one of the main, quote, I'm quoting from our statement, one of the most concerning aspects of this legislation is the creation of a permanent federal bureaucracy directed towards combating China. Throughout the bill, there are multiple calls for the establishment of 90 to 180 day reports to Congress and various federal agencies on the progress and planning of anti-Chinese efforts throughout industries and regions of the world. The creation of a permanent federal bureaucracy for anti-Chinese imperialist activity creates a permanent constituency within the federal government for opposing and antagonizing China. You know, this is part of like, again, this is part of like the this act of like creating semiconductor research within it includes like this of like, oh, well, we need basically the entire thrust of it is like basically trying to create infrastructure that is in contrast and opposed to say the semiconductor industry that exists in China and to try to move that away. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, that was like the one that existed in the Senate, the House version was the America Compete Act in 2022. This morphed to be, to be the Chips and Science Act. And so that is what passed. And in fact, that is like the uh, the when people talk about the semiconductor research, that is like, this is the context of that happening. Now, within hours of that announced that this passed, suddenly we have like this announcement of the the in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA that we're talking about now. And everything that David said in terms, in terms of that is completely correct. And so if you have this morphing of this kind of like development of industrial policy with respect to both technology, but then also with respect to say green, uh, green infrastructure, then within that you kind of still are very much within the same political economic bounds of like what yeah you know well you know David and I would argue is like an imperialist kind of model. And the fact that they would talk about creating a permanent constituency for what was it antagonism of China or something within the federal government it really speaks also to that deep establishment piece that David was talking about that this is how they think about a you're creating a bureaucratic entity that is going to be permanently uh, entrenched and shielded in some sense that then is going to take on the task of pursuing this mission, which is antagonism. And I got to just admit that, like, again, I think, you know, my, my work was on the, on the Green New Deal with Sunrise and was doing a lot of work in these spaces that, you know, uh, then funneled into Build Back Better and ultimately the IRA. And I want to be very clear that we were never fighting for the IRA. We were fighting for, you know, something much more like Bernie's Build Back Better bill. That's the one that we helped write. And I wish we had gotten it. And that being said, I do think we kind of um, just accepted a lot of this stuff. We swallowed a lot of this stuff line and sinker around the uh, American comp competitiveness piece. And it it kind of got wrapped up in the whole like, you know, we're talking about workers again. We're talking about U.S. labor again. And that all kind of like under a pro-labor headline, pro-U.S. labor, um, a lot of us, I think, accepted that like, Oh, and there's like a little bit of like rhetoric about um, 
like how it's yes up up to us workers down down to like you know foreign uh, adversaries taking our jobs and 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 we accepted that stuff but now that it's not just rhetoric and it's become policy it's very very frightening and the consequences are obviously incredibly real so i think that this just speaks to how serious this this blind spot was and, and the real life consequences not that we maybe could have prevented it, but I, I like, do want- uh, you know, it, it's just, it's been very, very sobering. And my own role in that has been one of the biggest things that has led me down this path of wanting to take this internationalism stuff seriously, especially where it just like becomes a matter of economic and trade policy. Go ahead, Jorge. I, 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 I do totally hear that. I will say there is a bit of a contradiction with the Inflation Reduction Act because on the, on everything, obviously I agree with this, but on the other hand, there is this element that is like, because it's passing, it actually allows for the development of clean energy infrastructure in a way that had not existed before. And in fact, the bill here in New York, the Bill Public Renewables Act that was pushed by uh, DSA that got passed here in New York, in New York, the first place that we can actually be development of public clean energy infrastructure is possible because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's a bit of a <laughs> interesting kind of contradiction because on the one, yeah, we're here saying it's like coached in the language of like U.S. Imp- uh, militarism and, and imperialist infrastructure. But on the other hand, we do need to do something with respect to climate change. So it, it is a contradictory yeah, position. Absolutely. And that's where I've said, like, I think um, I feel very proud of what we've done with that. And the U.S. left had its fingerprints all over that bill. I did another episode with Adrian Salazar of um, Grassroots Global Justice and Temps high where we were talking about this and some of the more upsides of it. But the extent to which it's been uh, uh, celebrated in an unqualified manner, and there are many people in the climate and energy space who are just completely unwilling to even acknowledge that there are um, pernicious consequences happening here, I think is where we really need to draw the line and and, and commit to examining this all uh, further. We're not going to get to nearly as uh, the the number of topics that I would love to in the course of this podcast. So why don't we just take this to okay? So I think without getting into the details about um, uh, about Gaza or about Ukraine, which I think both are very interesting topics. Both are very interesting for different reasons. Gaza, I think, has shown a, a heartening level of unity among the U.S. left, although with some caveats. While Ukraine was, I think, a much more confusing and confounding moment um, for for many of us, even while the ruling class was totally unified in support of Ukraine, let's do that on on, on another show. And for now, just uh, I'll ask. Um, for uh, those who are going on this journey, we're seeing, okay, it's not just militarism, it's economic policy and trade policy. It's this history of primacy. It's the, uh, don't call it the deep state, but we could maybe say a, a deep establishment that is fully entrenched in you know the quote unquote blob of American foreign policy. For those of us who are who are really comprehending that and wanting to incorporate that into our politics, um, where do we start? And uh, from the perspective also of, you know, being organizers who want to build power and we've got a lot that we need to fight for domestically when it comes to labor rights and racial justice and indigenous sovereignty and all of the movements, uh, decarbonization, all the movements that, you know, we we were already fighting for in in the 2010s, needing to bring that internationalist lens much more deeply. Um, Where do we start? Why don't you, you could just uh, take that in whichever direction you want, maybe starting with Jorge. Sure. Um, join DSA. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, but sincerely, I think joining an organization is the best way to try to 
work through these ideas because people have different perspectives and you're kind of going back and forth. So if you wanted to join DSA, go to dsausa.org slash join. In terms of like having much more understanding, I'd recommend like really in terms of a reading, uh, people should check out, especially for this moment right now in Gaza and everything, I think can be very confusing if you don't have a much stronger understanding in terms of why things developed the way that it did. Um, I think a good text would be Wretched of the Earth by Frantz Fanon. Um, in many ways, it's the manifesto for decolonization movements everywhere and can perhaps make more sense in terms of like why is it that uh, so many times when there's any kind of discussion about decolonization, it's, it leads to, there's confusion, there's a lot of different uh, tactics that are done, and I think people need to be more aware of that. Yeah, my, I mean, my my advice, uh, which is similar to Jorge's, is just not to feel not to feel alone or intimidated by the the global scale and the the amount of education that needs to be done to be fluent in a lot of these issues, because you have friends and people who are dedicating their lives to to, to, to this work, whether that's the DSAIC or whether that's my organization. Um, you know, this summer we hope to host a, a kind of summer school on making sense of the global economy, bringing together some of the great people in our network to kind of walk through questions of sovereign debt. Of feminist economics, uh, some of the things that I think are really helpful into, into making sense of how the U.S. fits uh, as an empire into the architecture uh, of the global economy. Uh, actually, I think I, I have a, a video coming out in two, two days with, with Jacobin about how we rigged the global economy. So there are some explainers. But I think in general, trying to be uh, a, a part of these organizations is, is, the, is the best way to really get an on-ramp because people around the world um, are articulating their demands. They are rising up and making visible and making audible uh, the things that that need to change. Uh, there are so many brilliant organizers, activists, academics, scholars, diplomats, parliamentarians, presidents, and prime ministers who are coming to our country and literally knocking on the doors of representatives and saying, you know, this needs to change now. And I think the task that we have as the U.S. left is, mm -hmm. is first and foremost to listen and to understand, certainly for me, it's been a, a huge, huge journey of education just to understand how the smallest articles of a single resolution or bill um, end up affecting uh, the lives of millions of farmers or millions of factory workers uh, or the, the, the status and the fate and future of democratic systems around the world. Um, and a lot of that legislation, as we know, uh, gets slipped in on the K streets of Washington, D.C., you know, in, into legislation. And uh, there's no expectation that I think Jorge or I have that we'll be able to build in a short order a kind of infrastructure powerful enough to take on uh, the security state and the people who influence it in quiet ways. But I just think that you know this is a it's a it's a long process and a long journey. And you know I'm I'm very pessimistic, very pessimistic. I would say I'm fatalistic about changing the nature of the U.S. Uh, government uh, of the U.S. state in the world. Uh, I just think this 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 will not happen in our lifetimes um, because uh, of of how how hard that fight is. But what we can do is focus our attention on these areas of policy making that get no attention, no resistance, no conflict. What we can do is make clear that we're not going to just roll over uh, as you know we steamroll our new trade policy paradigm, highly securitized trade policy paradigm. Right, um, you know, and there's there are these moments where we realize that this this is such a cheesy thing to say, but it, it bears repeating. You know, like it sucks, but 
the New York Times article admitting that they fucked up when it came to the claim of Evo Morales committing fraud in the 2019 election. That changed the course of Bolivian history, and as Jorge pointed out, changed the course of democratic history in the world as the only country in the history of the world to recover its democracy one year after a military coup, right? So these, and that came out of one investigation by two uh, researchers, one at the Center for Economic Policy Research in DC, one out of the MIT Elections Lab that changed the course of Latin America's political history by revealing the ineptitude, if you want to call it that, or the um, cretinousness uh, of the Organization of American States. These small heroic acts of resistance end up reverberating in a crazy butterfly effect around the world. And the best way to be a part of that butterfly effect of giving, you know, seeing the butterfly flap its wings is to, is to join uh, a DSA, is to, is to be part of our progressive international, is to be close to organizations that are thinking internationally, because that's how you get close to the action and see just how quickly things can change when the ball starts moving away from the more systemic injustice towards these momentary, yes, fleeting sparks of justice that can give rise to a more, a more raging fire as we hope in the century ahead. David and Jorge, uh, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time and we'll keep this going. Thanks so much, Will. It's a really a pleasure to be here. And of course, it's always a, a pleasure to hang with Jorge. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'd love to be around with David. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been The Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.